Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. In this episode, we're going to see Jesus healing a man from lameness and stirring up a huge Sabbath controversy in the process. That's something that's familiar to us from the Synoptic Gospels also. But here in John, Jesus takes it to a whole new level. In our last session, the time kind of got away from us a little bit. So today, since we're covering a whole chapter in the Gospel of John, I'm going to try to stick a little more closely to my notes. Well, let's get to it. We're in chapter 5, and we're going to start with verse 1. After this, okay, after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem. After what? After Jesus had spent some time in Galilee. Once again, we run into the fact that John is not concerned to tell us even the important details of Jesus' life and ministry, and he skips over all that Jesus had been doing and teaching in Galilee before this point and follows him back to Jerusalem. He's there for a feast. Bible scholars have their arguments over which Jewish feast this is. And the fact is, John doesn't care to tell us. He doesn't want us to get hung up on which feast it was because that's not the point that he wants to make. Some Bible students try to take different Passovers of John and see how they can fit that into the chronology of Jesus that's in the Synoptic Gospels, and that's fine, but chronology is, John's, is not John's point here. His point is to point us to who Jesus is. Remember, always, his purpose is not to tell us about the life of Jesus. It's always to point us to who Jesus is. Uh, after this, that is, after the things that took place in chapter 4, that's the only chronological issue we need to know for this story. And Otherwise, it, it really doesn't matter which feast it is. If John thought it was significant, he would have told us. We know that because in a later chapter, about a different feast, he does tell us. But in this case, the only thing we need to focus on is that Jesus is in Jerusalem and it's during a feast. And he's there, as we'll see, kind of incognito. He's not here as a public person. He is here privately. He doesn't want to draw a crowd. Not only is he not ministering publicly, he doesn't even appear to have his disciples with him, although he probably does have a few, including John, who is writing these things from the point of view of an eyewitness. And yet Jesus is more than simply a private celebrant. He may not be engaging in public ministry, but he's doing more than just enjoying the feast, as we shall see. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now you may have a footnote in your Bible that says some manuscripts have Bethsaida, but that's probably a mistake by a copyist who confused this place with the town that's by the Sea of Galilee. Now, why am I mentioning this about the manuscripts? Well, it's because some people take things like this and use it to cast doubt and say, how can we trust these scriptures? How do we know what is real? Well, the fact is that thousands of ancient manuscripts of the New Testament make it the most reliable ancient document of literature 
in the world because it's so testable. The inspiration of Scripture is a divine and infallible process, but the copying of manuscripts is an entirely human and fallible one. But scholars are able to compare copies and to present to us a document that is highly reliable. Now stay with me, and in a moment you're going to see the relevance of all of this, uh, of this point. So, let's get back to the place, Pool of Bethesda. Archaeologists have actually found this place. It is north of the Temple Mount. It was part of a ritual public bathing place called a mikvah. And by the time John wrote these words, the Romans had destroyed the temple and ruined the areas around it. So when John describes those five colonnades in the Sheep Gate, a small gate in the wall of Jerusalem, it indicates that he had seen the place with his own eyes. There's an artesian well there that springs up periodically and at irregular times. It will bubble up. At this point, if you're following along in the English Standard Version, you'll notice that about one and a half verses have been cut and placed in a footnote. Almost every modern translation does this, and some people get all bent out of shape and demand to know, why did they delete these words from the Word of God? Well, because the likelihood that this was written by John, the author, is about 0.0001%. There's a huge number of ancient manuscripts in this gospel and that are in existence. And some of them go back all the way to the second century. Only a few of those manuscripts contain these words. So if John didn't write them, how did they get there? Well, somebody early in the copying process but later than the earliest copies, wrote in the margin his own explanation for the churning water that people wanted to get into. Uh, they did stuff like that a lot. I'm, uh, just like many people today write notes in the margins of their Bibles. Uh, when it's put into a manuscript, that's called a gloss. And later on, another copyist, using that manuscript as his master document, copied that gloss into his manuscript and it got passed down as a couple of extra verses that made their way into the text of the gospel, almost certainly by mistake. And that's why they're rele relegated to the footnotes of most of the modern translations. Now, besides manuscript evidence, is there anything else that indicates that John didn't write these words? Well, you know we've seen how there are certain words or phrases that John uses a lot and when he does choose an unusual word, it's for a specific purpose, for an emphasis. Well, here, in just one or two sentences, there are about 16 words that John never, ever uses in this gospel or in his epistles. Now, that's just not the way John writes. And besides that, those couple of little extra verses add some real theological problems, actually, for reasons that we're not going to get into right now. We could discuss it if that was all we were talking about, but just talking about them this much has already sidetracked us from the main point of the passage. I just want you to know that when you see passages like this that are put into the margins or bracketed in your translation of the Bible, it doesn't mean the Bible publishers are doing violence to the Word of God. It's the opposite. What they're doing is preserving the Word of God. Okay, moving on. So here at this pool, among the multitude of hurting people waiting for the water to start bubbling, 
there is one man who catches Jesus' attention. He had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. <laughs> That's a long time to be laid up, isn't it? A long time to be sick. A long time to be in pain. Think about it. 38 years was the amount of time that the Israelites spent in the wilderness before God says, okay, can we, now we can think about heading toward the promised land. So, this guy's been through it. I'm saying that, I'm pointing that out and belaboring that because I don't want you to be too judgmental about this fellow as we go forward and find out what comes next in the passage. Have some sympathy. But it does make you wonder, doesn't it? Okay, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew it had already, he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Now, our first response is, Really? But it's a serious question. This man has built his life around being sick. He's built a life around being a cripple, around being a victim. And if he's healed, it's going to mess up a lot of things that are going that pro right now provide the comfort and the comfort of regularity to his life. And notice this: when the sick man answered him, he didn't say yes or no. That's significant. Look at his response. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. He comes up with an excuse why he's never made it into the pool to be healed in 38 years. So, now what have we got here? What is this pool? Does this pool actually have any healing powers? No, it's a bubbling spring that periodically turns over. So why did people think getting into the pool would heal them? Well, for the same reason people have, for centuries, have gone to natural hot springs and other sites like that for relief, and even for the promise of a miraculous cure. It's an ancient habit, but the scripture doesn't actually say the pool had healing power. That's part of the problem of the verses that are in the footnote. What the scripture does indicate is that people believed it had healing powers. People had ascribed to it healing powers and superstition and psychosomatic illnesses and all kinds of things are involved in this. And when the water was stirred, people got into it, found healthful benefits of the water and it's massaging their bodies. Some of them would come out feeling better, no doubt. and Some would come out professing healing because some of them may not have been physically ill to begin with, but they just needed some external sign or encouragement to, you know, I mean, that's the way these things work. This poor fellow had been there for 38 years, and he's still not healed. So Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And he doesn't answer the question. He comes up with an excuse as to why he's not. Well, Jesus doesn't debate with him. He doesn't explain the folly of all this. He doesn't answer his excuses. He, verse 8, what he says, Jesus said to him, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. And there it is, the third miraculous sign in the Gospel of John. But that is not the point of this passage. That's just the setup. Alright? Look at the rest of the verse. Verse 9. 
Now the day was the Sabbath. Okay, now why was this day a Sabbath? I mean, which Sabbath was that? You look in Leviticus 23, you see all the feast days are Sabbaths, whether they're on the seventh day or not. Now, maybe this was a seventh-day Sabbath, but probably it was the Sabbath of the feast day. And this man was found by the Sabbath police, carrying his bed, the mat he had to lie on for comfort, and he was on his way home. And so they picked him up for questioning. This is a serious crime, you know, carrying around your, your mat on the Sabbath day. And so, verse 10, They said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. He didn't, so he didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. He, Jesus had melted into the crowd. He had just performed a stealth miracle, as it were. Nobody saw him but the lame man who had never seen him before, and now he wasn't there. There was a crowd in the place. So this is what tells me Jesus was not there in a public way. There was a crowd, but they weren't there for Jesus. They were there for him to blend in with. Now, out of all the people who were gathered there, out of all the invalids, of all the sick people who were there, Jesus went up to this one guy. He didn't stand before the crowd and say, All who would be healed, lift up your hands. Lift up your voice, lift up your eyes to me. He didn't do that. He walked up to this one guy and he says, Would you like to be well? Now, why did he do that? Interestingly, there's not a clear answer in the text. It's almost like Jesus wants to get the attention of the religious authorities. He wants them to see something. And am I right about this? Well, let's just keep reading and see. Verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So, here's a man who had been ineligible to go to the temple before because of this issue. Because a cripple can't go into the temple and make sacrifice. But now he's at the temple. He's there, and for the first time in 38 years, he is able to participate in the feast with his people. And Jesus found him in the temple. And he says, this is still in verse 14, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse happens to you. Now, if you're assuming that the man's health problem was brought on by sin, that, that may or may not be true, but that's not the point of Jesus' words. Now, this is the closest thing in the Gospel of John to the phrase, repent of your sins. John never uses the word repent. That's kind of interesting. He never uses the word repent. Functionally, it means the same thing, though. Sin no more, or something worse will happen to you. This, <laughs> this doesn't mean that if you've got this problem, and if you sin again, God's going to smack you with something harder. That's not the point. Remember, this man did not come to Jesus with his need. Jesus came to him in his need. He didn't ask Jesus for help. He didn't express any belief in Jesus before Jesus healed him. Jesus came into his life seemingly out of nowhere and gives him the healing he's longed for most of his life as a free gift. Now, 
after he has been rebuked by the authorities for doing what Jesus told him to do, Jesus shows up just as mysteriously as he had before. But it's not to tell him that his gift has a price. No. Jesus is telling him, you've been helped. You've been given a free gift. You've been given an opportunity to have a new life. And you have been shown the goodness and grace of God in your life. But understand this. You must depart from your sinful ways, your sinful attitudes, and your sin be sinful behaviors before there is something much worse than the pain that you experienced in your illness, the judgment of God. Now, what do you suppose the man's response to this was? Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, you can make of that whatever you want to make of it. We're going to go on because this is still not the point of this passage. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews, in this case it would have to be the Pharisees because they were the ones who were the most concerned about the Sabbath. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Were persecuting. The implication here is that persecution was not a new thing. They were persecuting. That's an ongoing activity. It wasn't new. They were already hassling him on how he acted on the Sabbath. They were publicly hounding him, harassing him. All of that's discussed in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, so this is completely, this story is completely significant. This story of John is completely coherent and with the stories that are told in the Synoptic Gospels. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would expect this to become a discussion about the Sabbath. But that's not where John takes it. All of this is just a setup for showing us who Jesus is. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they would have been content to say that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, that's what, it, that's what they do say. That's not the point with this story. John doesn't stop there keep going. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. When God rested on the seventh day of creation, it didn't mean that he stopped everything and took his hands off creation. He continued to work. His work sustains this world. His work infuses creation with life. His work kept Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and after they sinned, his work pursued them for the sake of their redemption. His work continued for the sake of redeeming mankind to destroy mankind with the flood, but preserve a few in an ark. For the sake of redeeming mankind, pursuing Abraham and designating him to be a father of nations and a blessing to the world for the sake of redeeming mankind, liberating his people from bondage in Egypt and establishing them in the promised land, promising an everlasting kingship to David, sending his people into captivity and bringing them back as a remnant, all for the sake of redeeming mankind. And for the sake of all these things, Jesus says, bringing me to this place, my father has been at work until now, and I am working. And at this point, a new issue is introduced. Verse 18. 
This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not just to stop him. Not just to silence him, but to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now you're going to hear many authorities talking about the historical Jesus saying he wasn't killed because he made himself out to be God, but that he, he was killed because he opposed the authorities on things like the issue of the Sabbath, and he got everybody stirred up and made himself a nuisance to the Romans, and that's why they killed him. Their thesis is directly contradicted by John, who said, no, don't make any mistake. The reason they wanted Jesus dead is because they considered him guilty of blasphemy. And this becomes the point of the story. And from here we pick it up. He was making himself equal with God. What follows at this point is a series of truly, truly statements by Jesus. Verily, verily. Amen, amen statements. It's a simple phrase, but it's hard to translate. That It just brought over. And when we say, I mean... It's, it's correct to say truly, truly. It's correct to say verily, verily. It literally is amen, amen. But we really don't have a corresponding idea in our language. Modern translations typically translate this phrase. And by the way, this, this phrase doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible until Jesus starts using it. And in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew in particular quote, has Jesus and quotes Jesus as saying, Verily I say unto you, John has in doubling the verily. Verily, verily, amen, amen, truly, truly I say to you. So typically modern translations try to translate this phrase with the word and try to get across the point of the phrase uh, by saying with words like, I tell you the truth, or I am assuring you. It's far more solid than that. Verily, verily statements, truly, truly statements go together with Jesus I am statements. He's saying, from my own authority, I'm giving you this truth and this information. You must believe it because I say it. So he's speaking on his own authority. The fact that what I just said is an accurate interpretation is verified by the reaction of the people who are listening to him. Look at what it says. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. And then he began, he proceeds to make a series of statements introduced by the word for. This is the Greek word gar. It's a connective. It's used to stack reasons in an argument. And so he says there, I'm going to list some reasons why this is the case. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus says he's copying the work of his Father. And then, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel for the um, marvel. And then the third thing, uh, that you may marvel. And then here's, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now here Jesus says, the Son of Man, by which He means Himself, is not merely Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of life and death. 
That's who Jesus is. He goes on. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, that is a very strong statement of Jesus' relation to God as the Son to the Father. But there's more. Here comes the second truly, truly statement. The second, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Who says so? Jesus says so because he is the Lord of life and death. This is, this is literally breathtaking, the claim that he just made. But he doesn't stop here. He co here comes another truly, truly statement. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. And then, as our mouths hang open in stunned silence, he says, Do not marvel at this. Those, those words, do not marvel, indicates that there's an exchange, that there's a back and forth going on. John's giving, not giving us much of the other side of the exchange. He's not telling us everything that the, uh, the people he's talking to is saying back to Jesus because he wants to get right to the point. He's trying to emphasize what Jesus says, not what they say. So they're bringing up objections. They're saying, this is incredible. How can this be possible? And Jesus says, do not marvel at this. Do not marvel. Do not marvel. You claim to be the Lord of life and death, and you say, do not marvel? You say that it, you claim that a day is coming when the dead will rise because you called them forth, and you say, do not marvel? You claim that you're the Son of Man prophesied by Daniel, appointed by God to be the mediator between God and man, and you say, don't marvel? No, don't marvel at this. Why? Because, verse 28, for... An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You Pharisees believe this. You teach this. Why are you so shocked that I'm telling you how it's going to happen? No, what's shocking them is not the doctrine that Jesus is teaching. What's shocking them is that, one, he's telling them, not as one who has an opinion, but one who knows, and two... He is telling them as the one who is going to make it all happen. That's what shocks them. Now look at these words. The hour is coming and is now here. There's a present and there's a future in these words. The future element is the big one. That's why he names it first. There is an hour coming. But I'll tell you what. Jesus says it's already here. How is it here now? It is here in the person of Jesus. He's saying, gentlemen, when you're looking at me, you're looking at the final hour when God wraps it all up and fulfills all his promises. Some of the translations say, a time is coming. The Greek is much more specific. 
It's hora. The Greek word is hora. It's not chronos, time. It's hora, hour. An hour is coming. It's specific. It's not just a general time as in there's a season for all things and a time for every purpose under heaven. It's more specific than that. It's on the schedule. There's an appointed hour for this. It's going to happen. Okay, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, here comes that theme of witness, testimony again. In this case, Jesus is mimicking what they're saying. You don't think I, what I'm telling you is valid because I'm saying this myself. Okay, that's also another indication that there's a back and forth going on that John's only giving us one side of. He says, all right, suppose I grant you that point, that it's not valid if I'm saying it about myself. Suppose I grant you that point. You're still not off the hook because I'm not the only one saying these things. He proceeds to name three witnesses that back up his testimony. John the Baptist the miraculous works that he performs, and God himself speaking in the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John. You sent to John. And he's borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than I, that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that the Father who, who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, this form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Well, you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Do you hear him pleading for them, for us, to believe in him? That they may have life, that we may have life? You have the witness of John. You have the witness of the works that I do that the Father has given me. You have the witness of the Scriptures. See how he finally describes the pointlessness of studying the Bible if it doesn't lead us to faith that will save us. But he's not finished just yet. He has one more thing to say, and it's a solemn warning. Verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God, that comes from the only God? Excuse me. Do not think that I, will that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. And then the surprising words. We expect him to say, Satan. No. <laughs> Moses. On whom you have set your hope. 
For if you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now see how Jesus is responding to his persecutors? He doesn't hate them. He loves them. He wants to welcome them into his fold. Not for what he can get out of them. I do not receive glory from people. He addresses them now at the point of their religious pride. He wants them to be saved. They've spent centuries building up opinions, trading awards and accolades over them. But strangely enough, it's their religious expertise that's keeping them from seeing the truth of who Jesus is. And yet the very scriptures on which they claim to have put their faith are going to testify against them on the day of judgment because in the end, they didn't believe in the scriptures. They believed in their opinions. And they missed the one of whom the scriptures spoke. There is only one Lord of life. There is only one Lord of eternity, and that's Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will put your trust in him today and receive the free gift of eternal life. There is one miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels. And in our next episode, we'll examine John's version. This is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.